He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He rose from the dead. We just affirmed those words not too long ago from the Athanasian Creed. What does that mean? Did Christ go to hell? And if he did go to hell, why? Isn't that kind of blasphemous to say that Christ went to hell? By the way, the Athanasian Creed is not the only ancient historic creed that we hold to which speaks of Christ going to hell. This can also be found in the Apostles' Creed, which reads, we read this last week, our children are memorizing this, that Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. Then he ascended to heaven. Although historically, when it comes to the Apostles' Creed, we actually do know that this clause was added into it at a later date. It wasn't part of the original, but it was still extremely early. Very, very close to the earlier documents we have that don't have that clause are very, very early documents throughout the world that do have them. And so two of the Christian church's most ancient, most influential, most unifying creeds have included a descent of Christ, a descent of Christ into hell. What are we to think of this idea? Did Christ literally go to hell? I believe that our text today is going to shed some light on this. I'm going to tell you before we read the text what I believe the text teaches. The passage before us today teaches that Jesus Christ, after his death and burial, descended into hell, where he then led a host of people who had been enslaved there up to God. In short, Christ literally descended into hell to rescue a captive people. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10 with me? We continue in our Ephesians sermon series. Ephesians chapter 4, verse... Forgive me, I said verse 7 through 10. Yes, 7 through 10. When you've found the text, I would invite you to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, Thus saith the Lord... But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? I need to begin by making a quick admission. Uh, I preached this sermon this morning with much fear and trepidation, probably more than I ever have standing behind the pulpit before. And the reason why I, uh, maybe it doesn't appear that I am fearful, but I, I truly am fearful of this sermon. The reason I, for that is because I am taking a position on this text that none of my personal theological heroes hold to. Every single person that I would rank as like the best theologians outside of the apostles and Christ himself would all tell me, you're crazy. That's not what that text says. Just to name some of the names, these names do not have to have any meaning to you. It's okay. 
But just in case you're curious, I am disagreeing with men like John Calvin, Francis Turretin, Louis Burkhoff, Charles Hodge, and essentially the entire Reformed tradition. And this is a Reformed church after all. So admittedly, I, I, I preach with a lot of fear. But I do find some solace, before you're too quick to discount everything I'm about to say, I find some solace in this. What I am teaching is a minority view in the Reformed tradition, but it is not a minority view in the Christian church. As a matter of fact, it is the majority view throughout the history of the church, so much so that what I am teaching you today is actually referred to as the traditional understanding. And it's primarily the later theologians that have come to see a different reading of this text. And they make really good arguments for it. But even, it's not as if it's just modern thinkers who disagree and ancient thinkers who agree with me. Among uh, theologians today, uh, many, probably, I would even say probably the majority of Lutheran scholars and Roman Catholic scholars would agree with me even today on the reading of this text. So please don't think that I'm saying something that's wildly just out of left field here, because I'm not. As a matter of fact, even within our Reformed tradition, there are many Reformed modern theologians who are coming back, not just to this doctrine, but specifically to this doctrine being taught here. If you wanted, just in case, so you know I'm not totally making this up, you could read a couple books. For example, Samuel Renahan has a book called Crooks, Mars, and Fairy, the Latin term for Christ was crucified, died, and descended. In Matthew Emerson's book, He Descended to the Dead, both are books written by Reformed theologians who agree with me on the reading of this text today. So again, I am not, uh, I'm, I'm against the Reformed tradition today, which I don't like being, um, but I'm not against the entire Christian church here. Uh, and I also make that first admission for transparency's sake. I, I think that it's, it's a helpful thing for you to be reminded that Generally speaking, my job is to stand behind this pulpit, open up the Word of God, and tell you what this passage means. But Peter tells us in, in one of his epistles that some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand, which the wicked distort to their own destruction. So we have to understand that there are places in Scripture that are hard to understand. And so every now and then, I'm not going to know exactly what the passage means. And sometimes I have to just tell you what I, I think to the best of my abilities it means. And so that's what's happening in our text today. In other words, I'm trying to remind you that you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. And that means that it's okay for you to disagree with your pastor every now and then. So if you disagree with my reading of the text today, that, that's okay. I, I think this is a tough text. I'm not sure I'm right. The Reformed theologians I read make some really strong arguments against me. Uh, so I'm, I guess I'm admitting, I don't actually know for sure what this text is referencing, but I think I know, and that's what I'm going to teach you today. So you should do this every Sunday, but I want this to be an, a, a special Sunday where you remember that God has not called you to just open up your head and pour everything I ever say into it and then close it and zip it back up. Right? You're allowed to think about the things that I say. Uh, the book of Galatians chapter 1, Paul criticizes the Galatians for allowing false teachers to come into the church and spread a false gospel. And he doesn't just criticize the pastors, he criticizes the whole church. Right? You have just as much of a responsibility to make sure that the pure historic gospel is being presented in this church that I do. So I say this to remind you to listen with an open mind, but with a discerning mind. But I have to make a second admission. And my second admission is that I am kind of majoring on a minor here. 
And what I mean by that is we're going to talk about Christ's descent into hell today, but this passage is really focusing not on Christ's descent, but on his ascent. The, the main view of Paul, and I think that's why the stuff on the, on the descent is kind of hard to, to make sense of, because it's, it's just a quick little thought for him. He really wants us to focus on the ascent in this text. Right? And, and Paul is continuing his line of thought that we've been looking at for two weeks now on unity. And next week, we're going to see that Paul is continuing his discussion on unity. And he's going to talk about how one of the tools that God uses to unify the church is spiritual gifts. And so the primary message of the passage is actually focused on how when Christ ascended, that allowed him to be in heaven... And being in heaven allowed him to fill all things, and allowing him to fill all things allows him to distribute gifts to all things. Right? This is what, read with me um, verse, verse 8, for example. We're, let's begin in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So he's talking about Christ giving gracious gifts to us. And then he proves it by saying in verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So because Christ ascended, he fills all things. Which, by the way, we actually already learned this doctrine from Paul. We won't turn there now, but you could turn to chapter 1, verses 20 through 23, where it says that because God raised Jesus from the dead and ascended him to heaven, he can now fill all things and be the head of the church. So we've already seen in Paul's mind how important the ascension into heaven is and that it is from there that Christ fills everything and therefore he can distribute gifts wherever and to whomever he pleases. And so that really, if, if you want to take away, like what is the main reading of the passage? It's that. That Christ ascended to heaven to fill all things where he can now give all gifts. That's the, the Spark Notes version. But nonetheless, he does bring up, though, I'm not, I'm not going on a total rabbit trail. It's still, it's Paul who brings up this, this little sidebar about a descension. Right? Look at with me in verse 10. Well, let's do, read verses 9 and 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one also who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So this isn't a total off-the-topic sermon today. Paul twice recognizes that the one who had an ascension is the same one who had a descension. And so I want us to focus on this doctrine. What does it mean that Christ descended into the lower regions? Many Bible translations like the ESV, by the way, will put verse 10 at least, or really verses 9 and 10 into brackets. And I actually think that that is appropriate because I really do see Paul as just making a quick little side note here. He's talking about the ascension, but it forces him to use a quick little side note. And let me explain why I think this side note is actually important. Uh, in verse 8, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. He's essentially proving Christ's ascension by showing how it is a fulfillment of a prophecy about him in the Old Testament, specifically from Psalm 68, verse 18. But here's what I think is happening in Paul's mind. Uh, the psalm that he's quoting from mentions nothing about a, a descension. It only speaks of Yahweh ascending to the hill of Mount Zion after having victory for his people. And so I think Paul is worried 
that as they're focusing on the Christ who both descended and ascended, and he gives them a scripture verse that only mentions the ascension and says this is about Jesus, they're going to say, how is it about Jesus? Jesus didn't just ascend, he descended. And and Psalm 68 says nothing about a descension. And so I think Paul, in order to justify how he's using the Old Testament, just briefly reminds them that when the psalm says that God ascended, that, that naturally implies there was some kind of descension first. He had, to us, he had to descend before he could ascend. So that's what I think. I don't know. This is speculation. But that's what I think Paul brings up this kind of rabbit trail of a descension. Even though he's really trying to focus us on the ascension. He wants to justify his use of the Old Testament. Psalm 68 is about the Christ who both de and ascended, even though it doesn't mention a descension. Does that make sense? But let's now finally really get to uh, the meat of the issue then. What is this descension we are speaking of here? I want us to focus specifically beginning on verse 9. In saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? What does this mean? You might be interested, the ESV and in all of the modern translations. So if you have anything that isn't a King James or a New King James, or I don't know, maybe some of you are using the Geneva Bible, I don't know. But most likely, the chances are that your Bible reads very similar to mine. And the way they translated the verse, they're trying to tell you how to interpret it. And they are trying to tell you to interpret it contrary to what I'm saying today. They are going with the modern understanding of the verse, the reformed understanding of the verse. And and we know that because the way they interpret this phrase in the Greek is they use the, the earth to qualify the lower regions. Right? Like, for example, how does the ESV read in verse 9? In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth? So they're saying the lower regions is the earth. So how is the ESV understanding this verse? It's, this is a reference in the author of the ESV's translator's minds of Christ's incarnation. That Christ came from heaven to earth in the incarnation. He came from the highest heavens to the lowest regions in his incarnation. What are the lowest regions? Well, it's the earth. And then he ascended back. And that's how all the Reformed commentators understand it, that this is merely a reference to Christ's incarnation when he came down to earth, and then he eventually went back up to where he came from. And again, there's a lot of good reasons to translate that, that, or to understand it that way. But I actually prefer the way the King James Bible translates this. I think the King James translators got it right. They understood this more in line with the ancient creeds. You see, the, the King James would not read something like he ascended to the lower regions, comma, the earth. They would, uh, they would translate it as to the lower parts of the earth. To the lower regions of the earth. And that, I believe, is the more natural, more common usage of that phrase there in Greek. This, in other words, is not a reference to Christ coming to earth. It's a reference to him going deeper. Going even lower than the earth. He went to the lower parts of the earth. Now, both are possible in the Greek, but I, I think that the, uh, the best arguments are on behalf of Christ descending into the lower regions of the earth, not into the earth, which are lower regions. I think another reason to read it this way is, uh, just notice the juxtaposition. A juxtaposition is when an author compares two opposite things. 
That's what a juxtaposition is. It's a comparison of two opposite things. And notice his, his very poetic juxtaposition in verses 9 through 10. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Notice how the author does not talk about Christ descending to the lower earth and then ascending to the high heavens. He doesn't compare low to high. He compares lowest to highest. He doesn't want us just to see a high to low comparison. He wants us to see Christ went lower than the low and higher than the high. This is really rounding out his incarnation. Not just that he came from heaven to earth, but he came from heaven to earth and then went lower. He went even deeper. This, by the way, is how the ancient creeds understand the Greek here. They all, all of the copies of the ancient creeds say something in Greek like Christ descended either to the dead ones. So there was a place of dead people and he went to them. Or it will say that he descended to the lower parts of the earth. Or sometimes it'll even give a simple little Greek word, Hades. Christ descended into Hades. And that is what I believe Ephesians is telling us here. That Christ went into a place that we, along with the creeds, can rightfully call Hades. Which most people today refer to as hell. That's the position I take. Christ descended into hell. He descended into Hades, or specifically the lower parts of the earth. I believe this really starts to make more sense if we just briefly do a quick scan of the Old Testament. I think that understanding Christ's descent into Hades makes sense of how this phrase, the lower parts of the earth, is used all throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, there is not a clearly revealed uh, picture of the afterlife, right? Like we have heaven and hell and we go around and we evangelize and we tell people if you believe in Christ you'll go to heaven, if you don't you'll go to hell. This didn't exist in the Old Testament. Read through it. They don't talk about going to heaven. They don't talk about going to hell. There's nothing of that in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, every single time someone's death is explicated on, they are specifically referred to as going to a place called Sheol. And Sheol is a place where both the righteous and the wicked went. The Old Testament understood everyone who dies goes to the same place, and it's a place called Sheol, or the place of the dead. So the Old Testament saints had this weird belief that no matter who you were, when you died, you were going to go to the place of the dead. You were going to go to Sheol. I, I could give, honestly, I could give, we could spend a lot of time going through all the places that Sheol is referenced in the Old Testament. So I'm, I'm going to spare you. I'm just going to give you two examples. But I promise you there's a lot of them. I actually have these on the slides, if you would turn there. Two examples from the Psalms. Sorry, Drew, I caught you off guard. Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 139.8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So there you see some understanding of heaven, but primarily an understanding of Sheol. And, and the first one, the author David, is understanding that his soul is going to go to Sheol, but it won't be left there. But David knows, I'm going to Sheol. 
And this is all over the Old Testament. People who die go to Sheol. This place is described metaphorically throughout the Old Testament with three different understandings. It is referred to as being in the earth, at the heart of the earth, or the lower regions of the earth. But Sheol is always described as being as in or under the earth. Which, by the way, as a quick side note, I don't have this, makes a little bit more sense of that great verse in Philippians chapter 2. Who is it that's going to, just off your memory, don't turn there, who is it according to Philippians chapter 2 is going to bow their knee to Christ? There's three, three groups of people. Everyone in heaven, they're going to bow. Everyone on the earth is going to bow. And who else is going to bow? Under the earth. Everyone under the earth is going to bow. There's a third category there. All throughout the Bible, we have a reference to under the earth or inside the lower regions. Christ tells in the Gospels when he's speaking of how Jonah was a type of his gospel, he mentions how just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, I too will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Interesting. All throughout, we have this reference to Sheol being in or under the earth. Now, here's where it gets really fascinating. The New Testament was not written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek. And so they used, the writers of the New Testament took the concept of Sheol, but gave it a Greek name that Greek readers would understand. And guess what that word is? Hades. Hades, or as we would say, Hades. So in the New Testament... We have a place of the dead called Hades. You might think of Hades as Greek mythology, but it's actually a very common New Testament word. The word Hades is all over the New Testament. Again, I've got two examples for you on the screen. Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Your Bibles might say the word hell there, but just go online, type in the Greek, the Greek word is hadoi, a form of Hades. We see Luke 10, 15, Jesus speaking to Capernaum who will be judged for their wickedness. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades, to Hades. When Jesus was alive before his resurrection and ascension, he didn't speak of going to hell. He spoke of Hades. Jesus did talk about hell during his earthly ministry, but a different Greek word is used for hell, either the word Gehenna or the word lake of fire. But they're different words and different concepts. Hades is not hell. We're going to see that in a minute. But I want you to turn. I don't have this on the screen. I want you to read this in your Bibles. What I think is the clearest example of some peak into this mysterious third way afterlife, which is found in a parable in Luke 16. Keep your markers here, but turn to Luke chapter 16. While you turn there, I want to make a, another clarification that perhaps I didn't make clear at the beginning. I am very, 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 very confident that what I'm teaching you today is true and biblical. What I'm not so confident in is whether this true biblical teaching is what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 4. Does that make sense? So when I said I, I don't quite sure I know what the meaning of the passage is, I'm very sure about everything we're talking about, about Hades and heaven and hell. I'm just not sure if that's necessarily what Paul had in mind in Ephesians 4, just to make the difference, though I do think it is what he has in mind. 
Luke chapter 16, begin at verse 19 with me. A parable known as the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Or your Bible might say Abraham's bosom. So he goes to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here to us. Stop there. So Jesus tells this parable about a righteous man and a wicked man who die. And there's a sense in which they go to a different place. But there's another sense in which they very much go to the same place. They're at least in the same place where they can converse and have a conversation. But nonetheless, there's a chasm which separates them to some degree. And it even separates their experience. So when, when we talk about how in death everyone goes to the same place before Christ's resurrection, that doesn't mean that everyone has the same experience. There was still punishment for the wicked and comfort for the righteous. But nonetheless, Jesus speaks of a place where they are in some sense united. There's a chasm between them, but they're conversing. And the place where Lazarus is, is called Hades. Lazarus is, or forgive me, the rich man. Lazarus with Abraham, the rich man, is in Hades. I really think that one of the main reasons why we've lost this doctrine is because of the way we have associated Hades and hell. There is an association between them. But we have made that so close that our English translations have just removed the word Hades and they put hell in every time. But we know that there is at least some distinction between Hades and hell. Not just because the Bible uses different words to describe them, but because the Bible tells us that one day Hades itself will be cast into hell. I believe I have these on the screen. Yes, I do. Read this with me from Revelation 20. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Hades is not the lake of fire. Hades pours out everyone inside of it into the lake of fire. Hades goes to hell, in other words. Hades and hell are not the same place. There is a time when Hades is cast into hell, the lake of fire. So I believe that Christ went to Hades. He went to Sheol after his death. He went under the earth. But this leads us to an important question. If you're tracking with me, it leads to an important question. Why? What's the point? Did he go there to suffer? Why did Christ go to Hades? Well, Paul gives us a small answer to that. 
We need the rest of scripture to complete it. But go back to Ephesians chapter 4 and tell us how Paul understands the purpose of going to Hades. Ephesians 4 verse 8. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Christ went down into Hades to free slaves. He went to the place of the dead to take all these people who were being held captive to Satan, who were held captive to death, and he led this host free and he brought them to God. Christ went into hell on a rescue mission. Christ went into hell like the new and greater Moses to free the slaves. To lead this host captive to God. He went into hell to take and spoil Satan's plunder. He raided Satan's home, burst through Satan's door unannounced, broke the locks, took his riches and went home with them. He didn't go to hell to suffer. He didn't go to hell to be tortured. He went into hell as a victory lap. He stole what Satan stole. He took it back. He led a host of captives free. Ephesians 4 is not the only place that speaks of Christ's, the purpose of Christ's descent. Keep your marker here, but turn now to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. There's going to be a lot in this that we don't have time to cover. But the general gist of Christ's descent is what we're going to focus on. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In which, so he was made alive in the spirit, and then what happened to his spirit? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So notice how the text begins by telling us that after Christ suffered for sins, he went into a, his spirit went into a spiritual prison. And the spirits who were in this prison were on earth one day when Noah was alive and they failed to obey. And this is why God flooded the earth. And if you go and read the account from Genesis, you want to know what was the, one of the main catalysts that caused God to flood the earth? It wasn't just the wickedness of humans. Who knows what was the last straw that broke the camel's back in Genesis before he flooded the earth? It was the wickedness of angels. The angels had come down to earth and were intermingling with the sons of men and that's what caused such a great outpour of evil and then God flooded the earth. Jesus went into a spiritual prison 
to proclaim his victory to demons who were disobedient in the days of Noah. Jesus went into where the demons live to announce, I beat you. I win, you lose. And how do we know that? Because what happens after he goes into this spiritual prison where he preaches the gospel? Verse 22, he then ascends, he goes into heaven as at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Now that he's in heaven, he owns the demons. He owns Satan. And he went into hell to make sure they knew that. That's why, by the way, sometimes this doctrine throughout the history of the church has been called the harrowing of hell. To harrow, when you harrow something, is when you fill it with fear. Christ went into hell to fill hell with fear. Isn't that funny? You see, around Halloween time, we live in an American culture where demons fear us. Or we are afraid of demons. We watch demonic movies and people dress up like, like demons and devils and, and we, we meditate and think upon how demons are so scary to us. But do you know there's something that fills demons with fear? You know there's something that terrifies even Satan himself? It ain't you. It's the Jesus who kicked his door down and stole all of his stuff and then went to heaven to be his Lord. And will one day, as Revelation says, cast him into the lake of fire with his demons Will they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus went into hell to make sure the principles and powers and authorities there knew he won. They're done. Maybe this sheds new light if you would turn to Colossians chapter 2. Not in your Bibles, though I have it on the screen. Maybe this sheds some interesting light on the end of Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus Christ, after his death, descended into hell where he led a host of people who had been enslaved there in that prison up to God. That's what I believe Ephesians 4 is about. The descension of Christ into hell. But I think it would be helpful to close with why this matters. After all, as I said, it's a disputed interpretation. I might be wrong about this. So if it's something we're not entirely sure on, what significance could it possibly have? How could this make your life any better? How could this possibly make your understanding of the gospel any better? Did I just preach for 35 minutes about something totally irrelevant? I want to answer those questions with with two reasons why, assuming this is true, this impacts your spiritual walk with Christ. It, It makes the gospel better. It makes your life better. The first reason I came up with is that Christ's descent into hell will give you a greater appreciation of the resurrection. Christ's descent into hell will give you a greater appreciation of the resurrection. If you're a Christian in this room, I don't need to convince you that the resurrection of Christ is an amazing feat. You're already convinced of that. You already know that there are few things that better demonstrate the power of God, quite like raising Jesus from the dead. The only one you could really argue with is maybe creation itself. 
There's a debate there. But other than creation itself, the New Testament is very clear. The greatest miracle God has ever performed is raising Jesus from the dead. But can I submit to you that perhaps if you haven't known much about this doctrine, you've never fully appreciated that event the way you may have before. Here's why. We are tempted to only look at the resurrection through a naturalistic perspective. We know the resurrection is amazing because from a scientific perspective, it's impossible. Right? Resurrections don't happen. It's against the laws of nature. It's against the laws of physics. From a scientific, physical perspective, resurrection is impossible. And that's why God is so great. Because he has done what is naturally impossible. He has done what biology and scientists cannot do. He has done what the laws of physics themselves won't allow. He brought a biological entity that was dead for three days. And he regenerated that biological meat structure back into a living biological meat structure. But have you ever considered that there might be more to the power of resurrection than just biological regeneration? In order to resurrect a human, you need to do more than just make its dead, decaying body come back to life. You have to put its soul back in. So we're no longer talking about the physical realm. We're not talking about science anymore. We're talking about someone who has the power to make souls re-enter bodies. And here's why, according to our doctrine, this is so amazing today. What happens to your soul, according to this doctrine, when you die? It's imprisoned. The reason resurrection is impossible is not just because science can't explain it. It's because your soul is trapped. You can't get back to earth. You're under Satan's dominion. And you ain't more powerful than Satan. If someone wants to resurrect a person, they have to demonstrate not just that they have power over physical laws, but over spiritual ones. They have to demonstrate not just that they have a power over nature, but that they have a power over Satan himself. Because Satan is the one who lets people in and out of the dead. And Satan ain't letting you come back. You see, what happened in the resurrection was that God shattered the prison bars of the dead. And Jesus marched into hell and he looked at Satan who holds the keys of death in Hades and he took the keys from him and said, this belongs to me now, I'm taking my people away. The resurrection proves that God delivered his son from Satan's dominion. He saved Jesus from the power of Satan. I believe that Peter believes this. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. This is Peter's first sermon after Pentecost. This is one of the greatest sermons that a Christian has ever preached. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Peter, after Pentecost, proclaims this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, 
quote from one of David's Psalms. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter takes David's psalm where David says, I know that you will not abandon my soul to Hades. And Peter tells us in verse 24 and 25 that David was writing this about Jesus. So Jesus is the focus of this psalm. It is Jesus who told the Father, I know you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Isn't this amazing? You see, when Christ went into hell, when he went into Hades... What hope did he have he was coming back? No other person who's ever gone there has ever come back. But Christ tells us on the night that he was betrayed that he entrusted his soul to his father. What does that mean? He was entrusting his soul to his father. It meant, I believe that when I go to Hades, I'm not going to get caught there like everybody else. My father will not abandon my soul to Hades. He will break me out of that prison. That's what the resurrection did. It wasn't just regenerating what was biologically dead. It was overcoming the power of Satan and bringing Christ back from Satan's prison. Now you see the resurrection is seen in a whole new light now. But let me give you a second application of why this might help you in your spiritual walk. Number two, Christ's descent into hell will give you a greater confidence in your death. Christ's descent into hell will give you a greater confidence in your death. You don't need this doctrine to not fear death, but I do think it helps. You see, in the Old Testament, there was a mystery. Even for the righteous, there was a mystery. When I die, what's going to happen? Where am I going to go? I'm going to go to the place of the dead where everyone goes, where Satan is? You see, but because Christ took the captives free, he destroyed that prison... We don't have to worry about going down into shale. If you're in Christ today, when you die, you will not go to Hades. It's been destroyed. You will not go to Sheol. Rather, as the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament, when we die, we are, quote, away from the body, but at home with the Lord. Where are you going to be when you die? Hades? Sheol? No, with Jesus. Abraham wasn't with Jesus, was he? Abraham and the rich man in Luke 16 were waiting for the day when they finally got to be with him. And that's what the atonement did. The atonement burst open the underworld so that Abraham and all of God's people can now be with God when they die. You ain't going to some mysterious, mystical place when you die. You're going to be with Christ. Christ descended into Satan's lair to take his keys and splunder, forgive me, plunder his spoil and wrestle him to the ground. And this is why Christ can tell us, I have this on the screen, Revelation chapter 1. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. Satan once held the power of death. And he kept souls enslaved there. But Christ harrowed hell, freed the slaves, and gave the demons something now to fear instead. And this is why Christ holds the power of death 
and Hades. Let us close with Hebrews chapter 2. Turn there and then we will sing. Hebrews chapter 2. As a matter of fact, when you get there, I would ask you to stand. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 